Shalom, shalom, friends. It's great to be with you. I can see most of you are up in your chairs dancing for that part because it's Hanukkah and there's a lot to celebrate. So it's great to be with you all. And Hanukkah is such a special time. It's just a special time because it reminds us that little things matter, that little things are actually big things. We don't say, oh, there's a huge miracle, so go make a huge bonfire. We say, "Uh uh-uh, there's a huge miracle, so go take a little rinky-dink menorah and put it by your window and light a little candle, right? Because it reminds us little things matter. Little acts of kindness, little acts of menschlichkeit, little, little, little things actually change the world. And uh, that's a great insight of Hanukkah. Um, And that's why uh, we remember that a little bit of light dispels a lot of darkness. So I give you the bracha, and I hope you'll give it back to me, that you continue to have the faith in small acts, small acts of love, small acts of kindness, and what that can do to transform the world. So with that, friends, um, if somebody asked me what I like to do for fun, I would say it would be to get together with um, 10 friends and talk about Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, to some, that make me a little bit lame. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe they want to go to a football game or whatever. But to me, this is like what I want to do with my life is be with you all and talk about Sartre. So, <laughs> so with that, let's start with a little poll question here. On freedom, Sartre is going to deal with existentialism and freedom. On, on essence and existence, option one, I have an essence that I'm not free to escape. Option two, I have no essence, only total freedom. So what do you mean by essence? Like some aspect of your core being of who you are that you cannot change. So do you think you have that core essence and you can't really escape that core essence of who you are? Or do you think you really don't have that essence, just total freedom to reinvent yourself? Okay, 71%, I have an essence, I'm not free to escape. 29%. I have no essence, only total freedom. Okay, we will see where Sartre lands on that just momentarily. What is the proper way to live a human life? Is there a set path in front of us? Or is the world a totally open frontier for freedom? Jean-Paul Sartre was one of the leading French existentialists. One of Sartre's most famous phrases is, existence precedes essence. That is to say, there is no predetermined essence that shapes how one is to live their life. It is the concrete fact of one's existence and the freedom that goes along with it that allows one to choose how they live their life. Now, let's step back. What is existentialism? According to existentialism, here's four things we can say. Number one, existence is always particular and individual. Meaning, we're always talking about my existence, your existence, his existence, her existence. We're not talking about human existence at large. In existentialism, existence is particular and individual. Number two, existence is primarily the problem of existence. 
It is therefore also the investigation of the meaning of being. Meaning it's not like, woohoo, I exist. So let's go have a glass of wine. It's there's a problem. I exist? What does that even mean? Why do I exist? And how do I exist? And what do I do with my existence? It's a problem. Right? Philosophers love problems. <laughs> Number three. So do lawyers and doctors, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> Number three, that investigation is continually faced with diverse possibilities from among which the existent, i.e. the human individual, must make a selection to which they must then commit themselves. Okay, so the problem of choice. If I exist, I have choices to make. And if so, I have to make some level of commitment to those choices. It kind of ups the ante. I can't just say up, oh, I'm living the rat race. Rather, if I exist, then there's a problem of freedom and I'm going to have to be really intentional about what I'm choosing to do with my life. Number four, because those possibilities are constituted by the individual's relationship with things and with other humans, existence is always a being in the world, i.e. in a concrete and historically determinate situation that limits or conditions choice. Right. That's to say. Oh, my gosh. We talked about Back to the Future last episode, last last uh, session together. I, I, I very strange to do it twice in a row, but I can't just go in my time machine and be like, now I live in 1885 or now I live in 2020. Remember when 2020 seems so far away? Remember in the 80s? You're like 2020 flying machines everywhere. <laughs> uh, hoverboards. Right. So. Um, I can't just be like, I'm just going to go to the future. I'm going to go to the past. No, actually, there are some conditions that limit our choice, right? I have to be in this world, in this time. I can't escape that. And so I can't escape to some other world um, or, um, abs or abstraction away from this world. I have to make choices in the real time. Sartre deals extensively, extensively with what it means to act, quote, in good faith. To be authentic based on your freedom, right? You're free. How are you going to be authentically free? Living in bad faith, on the other hand, according to Sartre, would mean believing a role determined by other people who want to tell you that you, what you are is what ultimately defines you. You're black. That means here's your role. You're a woman. Here's your role. You're a Jew. Here's your role, right? You're a waiter. Here's your role. He did much of his writing in cafes. In fact, you can go to the cafes in, in Paris, uh, or in, in one in particular, where he spent his time um, drinking and smoking and philosophizing. It sounds like a, a fun life, huh? Uh, I mean, not to me, but <laughs> he did much of his writing in cafes. We, we typically imagine Sartre with a cigarette in one hand, a coffee in the other, and an enthralled audience around him in the cafe, right? The opposite of the philosopher sitting in their, their university office with the door closed, right? He's literally in like, the hustle bustle of a cafe with people engaged around him as if it's like a theater. But the cafe scenery influenced his thought as well. It was while watching a waiter play the role, so to speak, of a waiter, that Sartre came to understand such a person as not affirming their freedom. Right? It's like you go to Starbucks and you go through the drive through and the person says the exact same line to you um, that they say in any Starbucks in the world, whatever that is. Right. But most commonly, it's what can I get started for you today? Right? I don't know why I started. I mean, it's such a it's an interesting phrase. I don't know. Howard Schultz was taking a shower. It's like, that's the winning phrase. 
right? What can I get started for you? <laughs> um, in any case, um, Sartre thinks that someone who is just playing a role in kind of a robotic way, the way society expects them to, is, is operating in bad faith. And part of it is sitting in a cafe watching a waiter spend their hours of each day playing that role in such a um, predictable way um, led him to think more about this, What, uh, how all of us live in bad faith. Much like an ambitious and dreaming teenager, Sartre did not like the idea that most people are willing to put limits on their own selves and lives. George Kateb wrote, the human disposition, according to Sartre, is to deny our possibilities for the sake of the comfort of a bounded and well-defined identity, as if we could be nothing but what we are, and as if we were destined to be only one thing forever. One plays a role as if it were coextensive with one's entire capacity for being. This stance by denying possibility produces a welcome prison of self-induced limitation, right? I am a Democrat. My most important identity is I am a Democrat. And whatever the Democratic Party says, I'm lined up for it because I'm so committed to my identity as a Democrat, right? Um, or fill in the blank with other identities that people hold so tightly to, right? Regardless of the changes of time, right? That one doesn't think or exercise their freedom to make sure that they can hold on to that identity. Sartre's ideas emerged firmly in the context of World War II. In the war, he was drafted by the French army and held as a German prisoner. Sartre's thought separated what he called being in itself from what he called being for itself being in itself versus being for itself. An example of something that is being in itself would be a rock. It has no mind of its own, no will or agency, and doesn't really change until it's destroyed. However, humans exist for themselves. We're not determined or fixed or, or, de or, or, or definite <clears throat> or uh, the way objects are. We're constantly in motion and in a state of variability until we're dead and unable to change ourselves anymore. Sartre explained, consciousness is a being, the nature of which is to be conscious of the nothingness of its being. Um, right? That's not from his work, uh, uh, Being in Nothingness, but that is one of his most famous works. In any case, just read that again. Consciousness is a being, the nature of which is to be conscious of the nothingness of its being. So we could spend the rest of our time just thinking about that um, and when our state of being is full and when it kind of is kind of connected to nothingness. In Hebrew, we use the words yesh me'ayin. Yesh means something and ayin means nothing. And there's two ways to talk about creation. There's yesh me'yesh, creating something from something, and yesh me'ayin, creating something from nothing. Um, and in the realm of consciousness, for example, think about dreams for a moment. There's those who think that dreams are creating something from something, right? Essentially, um, you know, um, there's, you know, <laughs> um, a bunch of memories or subconscious ideas, um, neurons firing, and we're kind of just reassembling these into a dream state. Um, you know, from something that already happened to us or was already in our minds, 
then there's kind of the more mystical approach of the dream actually bringing insight um, that something creative happens, some new um, understanding emerges beyond um, where it emerged from. That's the same idea with revelation, revelation being something that exists from nothing. Um, the, the Bible understands Yeshma'ayin, creation from nothingness, in a way that, um, you know, defies the Greeks, you know, given that the Greeks were committed to the eternal nature of the world. While it may not sound comforting to think of our being as nothingness, Sartre did not see it that way. The fact that humans have no fixed essence allows them to change who they are. It grants them the freedom not to be defined by the way of religion, science, or culture may seek to do so. In 1943, he published his famous work, Being in Nothingness. In it, he argues that a human life is a type of loan, and each of us has the responsibility, responsibility of creating our own life. We have a responsibility to create ourselves. We are terrifyingly free, terrifyingly free to determine what we will be. While freedom can be empowering, it can also create tremendous anxiety for us. To be free means to be totally responsible for oneself, believing there is no purpose to life that can simply be handed over to us. Rather, one must construct the meaning of life completely on their own. In America and in Judaism, we love to think of freedom as an entirely positive term. But to Sartre, freedom is oppressive. It's oppressive because the burden of responsibility is so high. Right, we're so free and thus so responsible in a way that is so demanding. We are, in Sartre's words, condemned to be free. Sartre is often remembered by the coldly pessimistic quote, everything that exists is born for no reason, carries on living through weakness and dies by accident. <laughs> he is also famous for the line, hell is other people. <laughs> Hell, hell is other people, though this is not an actual quotation, but a takeaway from his 1944 play, We Clos, or No Exit. The play depicts three characters who have no freedom because they're in hell, right? You're not free in hell. Trapped together in a small room, they're forced to confront the ways in which they cannot escape perceiving themselves through the eyes of others, Right? I mean, um, many people live like that today, immersed in social media, constantly thinking what others think of them, right? And that's kind of the hell described here, where the, our, our dominant consciousness is one where we are immersed in thinking about what others think about us. In doing so, they have no freedom to create themselves, and each one inevitably finds themselves tortured by the others. Sartre shows us that hell is other people, because when we're not free to create ourselves, all we can do is pick at one another. Living in a time of turmoil, Sartre felt an obligation to participate in political issues, and he ended up taking positions that advocated for violent revolution against colonialism around the world. Involved in the, what's called the New Left, he was an apologist for Soviet communism, and he called the Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara the era's most perfect man. <laughs> Sartre supported movements that seemed to be grounded in virtue, but came to be dominated by power-hungry and often violent individuals. 
one of my personal beefs with Sartre um, is his support of the Iranian revolution. It's something Foucault also supported. Now, it sounded great, right? You've got a dictator and you support the masses who want to overthrow the dictator. But as we've learned, think like Arab Spring, think the, you know, think the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. Think about other kind of um, American interventions in uh, Middle East countries over the last 20 years. Um, it may seem pure to just try to overthrow a, a tyrant, but oftentimes you end up with something much worse. And the Ayatollahs used the secular Iranians in 79, we all know, right, um, in, that, in that revolution in, in order to um, uprise and overthrow the, the dictator. And now the secular you know, Iranians are more oppressed, far more oppressed than they were pre-1979. Think about the, the women now trying to protest in Iran. Um, and Iran is behind so much evil in the world and things they fund. Um, and, uh, you know, acts of terrorism and the like. And so, <clears throat> you know, Sartre was one of the many who were duped to think that revolutions against tyrants is always a win-win. Um, and um, and was duped partially by people who, <clears throat> you know, kind of hid their religious fundamentalism in ways that should have been more apparent. <clears throat> in any case, um, you know, I guess only in 2020 can you know what's going to happen. But what do we as Jews make of Sartre? We know from our annual experience of the communal journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai and the individual freedom journey from Elul to Yom Kippur that the spiritual life does require the hard work of struggling with self-accounting and self-reflection. While it can be easy and comfortable to simply embrace an identity thrust upon you and not question how you are to live, Judaism asks that we do more. In this respect, Sartre is in line with our worldview, as both place an emphasis on our duty to determine our own unique mission and purpose. Oh, I was raised a Reformed Jew, so I'm a Reformed Jew. I was raised an Orthodox Jew or Conservative Jew, so I'm an Orthodox Jew or Conservative Jew. I'm just what was handed to me. And teshuva, repentance, means, uh-uh, question what you are and what made you who you are so that you can continuously reevaluate who you need to be. I just parent the way my parents parented. And so that's okay. I'm not free to do it any other way. I just do it the way they did it, right? One modification might be that perhaps we do have an essence that precedes our existence. Being a person with a soul, assuming you, assuming you agree that we have a soul, made in the image of God, assuming you believe in that, puts upon us needs and responsibilities we didn't necessarily ask for. Wait a minute. Being created in the image of God means I have an essence. And if I have an essence, that means I have a moral responsibility that I didn't choose. Hey, I didn't choose to have to care about human rights. Stated more modestly, perhaps it's not the essence of our souls that makes us responsible, but rather our relationship to God what may, that makes us never completely free, assuming someone believes that. Just like one in a ro robustly committed relationship with a spouse or a child is never completely free to do as they wish, right? If I have a child, I'm not free to do as I wish. I have responsibilities to that child. If I'm married or partnered, I can't just do what I want. I have responsibilities to that partner. If I believe there's a God, I'm not free. I have some responsibilities to carry out towards that. 
While for Sartre, liberation comes from creating one's own self, in Judaism, we seek to reconnect to the essence that precedes us, right? Prior to my choice, there's an essence, there's a responsibility. To return to God and to return to one's essence, we find, may be the highest form of freedom. We think of freedom as throwing off what I've been told I am, right? But freedom might also be a return to what I truly am. And counterintuitively, we often find this liberation through practices that might at first seem self-limiting. More than doing what one wants to do, we value the importance of being of service to God and to our fellow human beings, however we understand who we're obligated to. And that can be really hard to take care of a spouse, to take care of a child, to fulfill one's work responsibilities. A, par a parent who spends all their time trying to be radically free and reinvent themselves is not in fact finding the highest form of freedom, not if they're ignoring their obligations to their children. However, one who commits their time to working a hard job and taking care of their children is in fact finding greater liberation by living out their purpose. Of course, such a parent should have the societal support that makes this more possible and less personally taxing. The journey from Egypt to Sinai shows us that true freedom comes in the form of responsibilities and opportunities for service. Freedom, we see, is not the same thing as self-actualization, right? It's not that I'm just seeking to find my deepest happiness, and that's what freedom is. For Sartre, we would be in bad faith to, be, to by default, commit ourselves to an inherited traditional morality, whereas for many Jewish thinkers, to live in accordance with Torah is itself the highest actualization because it enables us to transcend our self-interest in favor of a higher calling. Someone in the name of freedom might think, I just fulfill every desire I have. I'm free to drink as I want and do drugs as I want and have sex as I want and steal things as I want, right? Because I'm free to, to, to choose whatever I want. But rather to say I'm committed to a morality beyond my choice might be a higher form of freedom ultimately. Sartre doesn't simply think one must reinvent themselves, to be sure. He knows we can't be, quote unquote, totally free in every decision we make. And there are parts of ourselves that we cannot choose, like our height. I don't choose my height. In being in nothingness, he places a great emphasis on what he calls the project, what we might think of as an existential life project. For Sartre, what's most important is that we choose the endeavors that bring meaning to our life rather than just simply accepting them because they've been imposed on us. Another way to think about it with a Jewish application is that for Sartre, it's not enough just to do meets vote because the rabbi says God commands it. It has to be something that one chooses freely for oneself and commits to as a source of meaning that orients one's life. Right. If I choose to light a Hanukkah tonight, it's not, oh, I feel obligated because my grandparent did it or my parent told me to do it or, you know, there's some external obligation. Rather, before I light, I acknowledge that I'm free to choose this. Right. We can imagine, though, that Sartre might want to push back on the notion that we can live our fullest lives without pursuing all of our personal desires. Professor Yehuda Gelman analyzed the gulf between Sartre's approach to actualization and Rebbe Nachman's. 
Here's what he wrote over here. In his existentialism is a humanism. Sartre gives the example of the person who thinks of himself as a poet, though he has hardly written a poetic line in his life, but he's committed to the identity of poet. He is a non-poet, no matter what he says about himself to himself. Just so, the son of the king might think of himself as a Hindic, a turkey, but he is not, and by the end, he does not act like it. However, unlike Rabbi Nachman, Sartre was all in favor of bringing out transcendent self-image into alignment with our actual reality. Anything short of that would be what Sartre called bad, bad faith. Here, though, Rabbi Nachman would be allowing a rupture between our self-image and our reality as lived. So the Jewish answer to this criticism, though, should be simple. In a world in which we can't do everything, we must have some values that are higher than others. If one must choose between following their wildest dreams and living in accordance with eternal truths, the choice should not be at all that difficult. And so Sartre is both right and wrong. It's generative to break free from so many of the assumptions about what we need to be. Maybe we don't need to be the richest, the best looking, the most productive, or the person who gets the best Instagram vacation photos. However, Jewish wisdom teaches us that we will ultimately submit to the will of something. And that something should be rooted in the ethic of responsibility that gives our lives meaning. So to conclude, what will we submit to? Will we submit to the will of God, the will of our social circles and zeitgeist, the will of our desire, the will of some abstract morality we've, we've committed ourselves to? With our freedom, what will we ultimately choose to guide us and command us, so to speak? Okay, friends, so much more to discuss. Going to pause there and would love to hear from you on any of these uh, on any of these fun fun issues of the day. Yes, hey Gary. Hey, good Please morning, remember. everybody. Aksamach. I want to go back to kind of what you finished uh, with about this essence and one soul and not really being free, but being free. I guess the, the question that I have uh, is, you know, uh, Judaism says you really don't have to believe in God. You just uh, keep doing what you're supposed to do. And then ultimately you'll you'll uh, hopefully believe that there is a God. Uh, that's paraphrasing, you know, uh, but yet. If if you if you don't believe in God, how does how does that how does that connect with having this essence of a soul that God has given us, and compared to free will that we can do what we want and this this uh, uh, this freedom or to do these things because we have this essence of a soul and we have freedom but yet we don't have freedom and but if you don't believe in God then that kind of leaves. Well, we are with free will. So I'm, I'm a little perplexed here. Yeah. Yeah. Gary, <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. So um, let me just give one reflection. Then I'm going to bounce it back to you, Gary, be, um, because I think you're saying something richer than what I'm going to touch upon here. But yeah, I mean, for some, the soul, the, 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 the soul um, is in some ways deterministic. In other sense, the soul is the source of freedom. Uh, according to some, the soul is our most expansive place, our most expansive way of being. It is that space within us that goes beyond our DNA, beyond our genes, beyond our early childhood experiences, beyond our socioeconomic status and race, beyond our gender. It's that part of us 
that is um, otherworldly. It's that part of us that can that can transcend our flesh. It's that part of ourselves that is eternal, transcend our time period. It's the source of all freedom, the soul. And yet for others, the soul is is actually the, the, the godly part of the self and thus makes us determined because it is ultimately rooted in um, something beyond us and beyond our will, ultimately. And um, I remember Rav Cook saying, well, I mean, you know, that there's no such thing as an atheist because even if someone denies God, the soul in, within them is still ultimately yearning towards God. Um but, you know, one could push back on, you know, on that as well, that who's to say that, you know, what what is happening within someone else, ultimately. Um, but Gary, I think you're you're um, you're absolutely right um, that to say that one's choice to believe in divinity or not um, may be very, um, you know, informative of how one views views freedom and how they actualize that freedom. For some, they feel I'm more free because I haven't been duped by some theology that I that there's some God telling me what to do. I'm free from religion, right? Um, and for others, they feel more free um, because of that godly belief uh, that feels it opens up a whole other way of being into the world. So let me pause there, Gary, and send it back to you to see if you want to engage with that a little more. No, I, I again, I'm uh, kind of perplexed with the, with the whole with the whole thing, and I think that your last explanation uh, kind of fills in some of the gaps there. That uh, regardless of if you're right or left or believer or non-believer is really what I meant to say here. That uh, you, you can look at it in any way that you can. Obviously, the ultimate point is that we uh, create a, a a better world in, in in which we live in, regardless of how we uh, find the uh, uh, the uh, I can't think of what I want to use. You know, despite how we get the uh, the uh, you know the the how wherever the reason we we decide to go right or left, the endpoint is is still the same. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I I think part of what we might push back in the spirit of the conversation is of just checking the box, right? I check the box. Oh, I'm certain there's a god, or I check the box. I'm certain there's not a god. Rather, to live in a space of wonder, to live in a space of not knowingness, um, to live in a space of, of avoiding an absolute conclusion um, might expand our sense of freedom in that um, it opens up path, pathways of being, pathways of thinking and pathways of feeling. And I think that that's a Jewish contribution to the world, that the question is more important than the answer. Um and that not knowing is more important than knowing, in a sense. That it used to be that to be a religious person, a spiritual person, means I know the truth, right? But actually, Jewishly, we say actually not knowing is the higher is the higher plane. Yes, I live as if I think something. I, I'm going to conclude I don't really think there's a God, or I conclude I really think there kind of is, and I'm going to live in accord with that belief, but I still don't know. And so I'm humble in, in what I know, and um, and that expands our that can expand our freedom. Hi, Sarah. Hello. So um, I want to go back. Gary started at the end. I want to go back to early um, in the conversation, which was a question about changing who we are. That I find a really puzzling notion 
Do we ever change who we are or do we simply change the ways that we manifest ourselves in this world or either to meet this essence that may or may not exist within us or so that others will see us in a particular way and we have no control over how they see us they may see something but do they see us as we are that was one the other one that came up for me as i was listening and watching was and what about those with mental illness who are potentially untreated who are in a psychotic schizophrenic state who knows what is their essence how is it manifesting are they actually manifesting their essence for us to see are they making genuine choices about how they're acting in this world and those are the two questions that arose for me awesome awesome sarah thank you yeah the mental illness one i'm going to throw that out to the group to reflect on and think about um what we do with that i think there's a lot to discuss there that's really interesting um and um it's also worth reflecting you know going going you know further with that as well um going back to our conversation around disabilities um and which type of disabilities do we want to cure and which types of disabilities is it offensive to talk about curing we talk about care versus cure um and um there are those who feel um that um who their identity they're committed to and their way of being in the world which is just as valid is in fact having what we call that disability um think about one in a wheelchair a paraplegic versus someone who is deaf um, or blind and those who would want to talk about cures versus those who would not and um and how we think about freedom of, of mobility freedom of it, full engagement but to go back to sarah's first point this notion uh, around this notion of essence and um, can we ever really create um, a new self? Going back to conversion, we know that Kabbalistic, we, we say, what one, it's not that one was a non-Jew who has now become a Jew. Kabbalistically, we say that they had a Jewish soul already, and now they have to return, they have to convert the body, so to speak, to be aligned with the soul. That's the way the mystics talk about conversion. If you look at the trans world, I'm not really in the trans conversation these days. It's been a few years, but a, a trans person might feel I am a male trapped in a female body. I'm not creating a new self. I'm kind of realigning what I already am that, that is somehow misaligned in some sense. Um, people who are more in that conversation can share better language than what I'm using there to, to talk about that. But that sense of are we created perfect and we're returning back to that perfection or are we created imperfect and we're ultimately looking to become something uh, different or better um, in a sense? This is goes back a little bit to our Rousseau conversation around nature versus nurture, but so too this sense of, of um, what's already within us and are we trying to escape that or return to it? 
Okay, Sarah, I didn't even go nearly far enough what you had to say, so I hope you'll jump back in. But Aglaya, let's let's hear from you. Okay, so I actually heard everything that happened in the beginning because I was driving, so I had you on Zoom on my phone. But anyway, though, but the short version of the story is, first of all, someone is going to get really mad at me in just a few minutes, so, but, you know, it is what it is, okay? Um, thinking about, you know, Sarah's point about what other people say you are versus what, you know, okay, um, to start off with Sartre, um, it's like I said, someone's going to get mad at me for talking about this, so, but Sartre's preface to France Fanon you know, and the wretched of the earth, ended up pissing off a lot of people. Now, Franz Fanon actually ended up getting associated with, oh, yes, violent overthrow, you know, violent overthrowing of colonial oppressors, blah, 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 all of that stuff and everything, which um, Franz wasn't too happy about Sartre's preface. However, though, that's how Sartre interpreted what Fanon was actually writing about. And so here's the thing, though, okay, you have, you know, Fanon's um, book, and then Sartre's preface, what did everybody pay attention to? Sartre's preface, because that's what scares people, okay? Now, later on, just so you guys know, later on, that whole thing with um, Sartre's preface ended up getting cut because he had a huge falling out with um, the widow of Franz Fanon um, because of his support, Sartre's support for um, the, um, what am I thinking of? Um, Israel, okay? So anyway, though, that's, you know, another completely, you know, different story though. This is just speaking historically though. But here's the thing though. Now, how do people remember Franz Fanon? This guy who wanted violent overthrowing of all of these colonial regimes, blah, 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 blah. Now, when it comes to someone like me, my own personal story, look, I put off my conversion for like forever because of the idea that every label that has been put on me in my entire life is basically turned into a prison. And for a long time, I tried Sartre's approach of like, no, no one's claiming me. Absolutely nothing. No one claims me, blah, 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 blah. Then I realized uh, it's not exactly working because, well, I had to go and advise my students who were coming to me about their own particular issues. Now, I had to call myself on my own hypocrisy on this, though. I'm not afraid to call myself on hypocrisy. And if you want to call me on hypocrisy, go right on ahead. It's all good. Because here's the thing, though. I had a young you know, white appearing black male come to me, he's transgender male. And he's talking to me about, well, do I have the right to, you know, be a black man because I'm white appearing? Do I have the, I said, well, do you have the right to be male because you have female body parts? I mean, let's talk about this. Let's talk through this. And so finally he comes to the conclusion that, well, yes, I am a black man and I'm happy with being a black man. I was like, right on, right on. Okay. But then I had to say, wait a minute, but then you're the biggest hypocrite on earth because here's the thing though. Why aren't you claiming your own identity? So why didn't you? And so that's when I said, okay, now I've been a big fat hypocrite this whole time. And I have to actually like call myself on my own BS. But here's the thing though. How many people out there, you know, would say, Hey, but you were born this way. People in my own family have told me you were born here. Why not just stay here? You were made to be this stay there, you know, just don't rock the boat and everything. So I don't know, I kind of, um, I kind of feel like when people tell other people, you know, this is who you are. I don't know, I kind of feel like it's a bad idea, you know, like really bad idea, including in situations where there's a mental illness because of the fact that, well, you don't exactly know just because you don't have this person's mental illness, you are looking at them through their mental illness, not through, you know, any, I mean, a lot of the time, though, people do have this veil of this person's mentally ill 
over them. So this is not who they are. How do you know that, though? I mean, Agree, uh, Agree, uh, Agree, uh, Agree brings up so many fascinating points. And just to pick up on this last one, this notion, not only just the imperative to be free, but what but reflecting on how we ourselves limit other people's freedom. We normally think of only tyrants doing that. Right. And the system does that. Um, but each of us does that to each other. Um, each of us does that every day. We limit other people's freedom by imposing kind of an identity upon them or, or uh, telling them, as Aglaia said, telling them what they are. And um, as Aglaia has spent a life uh, trying to escape people doing that to her and, um, you know, shares, her, shares wisdom on the benefits of that and also the challenges, that, you know, and futility of that. Um, of, you know, nobody being able to claim us. And so I want to throw that great question, you know, that Aglaia raised out to others here as well and, and see if anyone's willing to reflect on, are there some ways we see people socially limiting others' freedom, ways that we might address? Are there ways that you yourselves have done it? I mean, I myself do it all the time because I have kids and I think half the project of parenting is limiting freedom. You know, no, don't do that. No, stop hitting your brother. No, don't put jelly on the wall. Right. Can't, can't, you're not free to put jelly on my wall. Right. I feel like a tyrant, you know, uh, why? I'm free to do what I want. I can put jelly wherever I want. I know it's my wall. That's not your wall. You didn't build the. I didn't build the wall either. Right. But soon they're going to be smart enough to make better philosophical arguments for why they can put jelly on the wall, why they can hit their brother. And then I'll and then I'll be very intrigued by listening to them. But <laughs> anyways. All right. So um, if folks want to engage with that. But first, I see Lauren has a hand up. Hi, Cook Samantha, everybody. Um, so a few things, one thing, when it comes to mental illness, I see mental illness as actually limiting you from being who you are. The moment I have a, the moment I have a friend who's, all, who's been bipolar for a long time, but at the moment he's hospital with mania and man, that's been really hard on his adult kids, but it keeps him from being who he is. He's, he's a lovely, cultured, intelligent person. And at the moment, he's he's delusional. He's harmful to himself. Um, he can't be who he is, and he really he needs help. I mean, he's in a hospital. He's in the psych unit, and not for the first time. Hopefully, it will get him back. So, you know, I think there are parameters that keep us from being who we are. And and same with freedom. I mean. I've always seen freedom as you're free, but with responsibilities. Um, we, we do have responsibilities to our society, community, etc. There's no such thing as complete irresponsible freedom. There's responsible freedom. And my last point is, yeah, we're free in that, you know, God created us with, with free will, but you're still limited by your intelligence, by your physical abilities, I mean, I could want to be like the world's greatest figure skater, but I can't even stand up on skates. So, you know, you you have to learn to be free within what you're given. And you can overcome some stuff. You could not have an education, get yourself educated. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a limit. Anyways, okay. Great. Lauren, Lauren, um, so I heard your first point on mental illness. I heard your third point on um, these limitations were given, but I'm sorry, I missed your second point. Can you say that one again? Oh, that's the one about freedom with responsibility. 
And I think back to like those idiots, uh, anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers who said, oh, I want to free, free, I want to spread COVID to everybody around. Um, that's not freedom, that's license. You know, this, oh. you have responsibilities. Once you're living like completely on your own in a box where you're not with anybody, you have a responsibility to society, to your friends, to your family. You're not like totally free to act in any way you want. Right. Another good another good example there might be, you know, the freedom of gun ownership. And when that's taken to the point of like that any any number of semi-automatic weapons or automatic weapons can just float around in any hands because people have the freedom to own what they want. I know Canada does, that doesn't have this problem to the extent. Not that Canada, <laughs> not Canada. No, 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 yeah, no. Right. So yeah, so it's very interesting actually. And here there are there really when you get to the politics of freedom, you see the great hypocrisies of the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, that the the right to choose, um, you know, that in in some cases the, a party places freedom very high, um, and freedom over responsibility. And then on other issues that the, the party chooses collective responsibility over personal freedom. And it, and if um, and very few are, are committed to there being a consistency, even the libertarians who pride themselves, uh, you know, on on liberty and on freedom have have, have these inconsistencies as well. And so free. Um, and so it's it's the, yeah, the, the 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 levels of hypocrisy that are involved there and people do acrobatics to show why it's not why it's why it's why they're different things, you know, Um in any case, um, just just to touch on your first point, yeah, I mean, I I I largely agree. And if anyone has a different perspective, it'd be great to hear around mental illness and why it is important we treat it. Um, treatment is really important, uh, but I, and I guess one of the challenges is how do we not stigmatize while also not romanticizing? Because it's easy to romanticize mental illness. Oh, geniuses with Aspergers. Or Rebbe, not like people who are bipolar having this rich life experience, or the great existentialist who's depressed, but the depression is itself is noble, right? Because it's this low state of being where one can access a deeper truth, right? So it's easy to romanticize mental illness, but it's also easy to overly stigmatize. And so it's finding some balance, especially for people who live with mental illness, not for a year, but their whole lives, even while they treat it. Um, that that is just a way of being in the world that is beyond beyond choice of of treatment. Uh, I just want to address what what Lauren said. Uh, I agree with the whole mental illness issue with her, but I think there's a to me there's a difference between one's physical attributes. You know, you're six foot two and you're and you're a great basketball player and you're five foot one and you you you're not going to make the NBA. Uh, and may, and those things, I don't think we we necessarily can change our essence or or, or who we are. But re, uh, regardless of your physical attributes, which related to DNA, I, I think we do have capability to change uh, how we think and how we how we function in, in in the world. And I think that's that's a big a big difference. I've never done a well not my age, but I, I was never going to be an NBA player at you know five foot four, uh, but. But I think that uh, you know, through education and taking classes like this and and studying and learning, I was able to look at the world in in a completely different perspective and change who I was. I'm a very different person at 71 than I was when I was 18, or when I was 40, or I was 50. Uh, so uh, I, I, you know, that's that's my comment there. 
The second thing I wanted to say that I think we have more than one identities, uh, depending on who looks at you. You know, I, I may perceive myself as one thing and you may know me from VBM and look at me completely different. And my students, uh, what, uh, when I taught, look at me com completely different. So it's not necessarily what we think, uh, it's it's how people perceive us in, in the relationship uh, that we have. And that I don't think we can have any control over. That's my wow. comments there. Awesome, awesome, thanks Gary. Well, uh, first of all, just to uh, refute your argument that, um, uh, that because you're 5'4", you couldn't be in the NBA. I made sure to put over there that Muggsy Bogues was 5'3", NBA star. So you were free to be Muggsy Bogues and have an inch over him. Um, <laughs> Scotty Pippen was short? Oh, I, ne I never realized Scotty Pippen was short. I didn't think so. I thought he was over six, yeah. But maybe someone can Google that real quick. Um, in any case, um, I also want to remind folks that Sartre had some stuff to say about the Jews. In fact, he wrote this um, he wrote this essay or book called an essay, but uh, the question of the Jew, where he talks about these four categories of people, the anti-Semite, the Democrat, the authentic Jew, and the inauthentic Jew. And um, yeah, and I, I'd have to you know brush up on the complexities of what he was dealing with over there, you know, also having to, yeah, Scotty was like six, eight. Um, Got the wrong player. Oh, 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 yeah. There was, there was a, there was somebody on the Bulls who was uh, on the short side. Maybe Steve Kerr. Maybe Steve Kerr was. I, he wasn't so short either. Any case, um, <laughs> um, yeah. And to your other point there, Gary, it's really empowering to think about how we can shift perspectives, how we can learn, and um, learn each day. And you'd be a little uncomfortable each day, and really, you know, expand that way of being in the world and to think about these different identities that we have in the world, like you said, with students, with friends, with family, and to make sure we don't feel bound by them, um, you know, but really, you know, don't just constantly play the role that others want us to play, but think about who we want to be and need to be in those relationships. Um, okay. Who do we not hear from yet? Ed or Gary Gartsman or Steve Chauvin? Or, okay. I, okay. I see Ed and then Steve. Great. I guess I have more of a question, but I had heard that you were conceived with an understanding of Torah. And I guess this was must have been a rabbi that must have said this, but I don't know who or when it was done. But at birth, you still retain it, but you have lost it. You, you're, you know, and you the purpose in life is to regain Torah. But we would all be doing it at a different pace, or not at all, maybe. Um, so wouldn't that kind of half explain why we perceive things differently in people as they might perceive differently of us? And so it comes down to uh, the individual's feeling of freedom and responsibility to say, wait a minute. You know, I've got to think about this. I've learned something new today. I've experienced something new today. And that doesn't quite jive with where I'm going. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe I ought to consider a slight change if mm -hmm. I can. Great, great. Uh, yeah, so, is is that from the Jewish? You, you stated it so well. You're exactly right. There's a midrash that says that in the womb, the... Every child is is mastering, you know, Torah. 
And right as they come out, the angel strikes them right here in this little soft spot under the nose. And in that, based on that strike, they lose all of their Torah. And then it's always a constant re remembering. Um, and that that's kind of a profound, yes, it's, it's there, but it's not there. You're remembering, but it's completely gone. And so the other question that emerges is those who believe in reincarnation. Now, to what extent am I that past life? If I have a different body, if I have no memory of that life, or virtually no memory, um, a different intellect, like what makes me that person, that, 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 that soul? And that touches upon also that, or, or deja vu, right? But those who think that um, instinctively, like why do I like salsa or spicy food and you don't, right? Or why is it that certain things rub me the wrong way and they don't rub you the wrong way? Well, it might be from early childhood experiences and it's, you know, it's not totally conscious to us. Or according to others, it may be something that precedes life, right? Something that taps into that realm of essence, whether that's divinely, you know, um, you know, dictated or whether that is from a previous life or from the Torah of the womb, so to speak. And so, yeah, it's the mysteries of what's happening deep inside of us. And people try to tap into that. I mean, some, you know, some go to therapists, some people go to, you know, readers, some go to dream interpreters. Um, you know, there's so many ways to kind of get deeper into what's happening within me. And the question is, is my freedom an inner journey or an outer journey? Is my freedom, I'm going to get on a plane and travel the world and go wherever I want, like I'm free, you know, and I'm going to learn from everyone. Or is it an inner journey that the deepest, the deepest journey of freedom is is towards that truest self within? Um, oh, well, we're still. I see we're still on basketball heights over here. <laughs> okay. Yes, fun, fun web at five six. Great. So Gary, we're just we're just wanting to slam down that um, <laughs> you, that you can you might still be able to be in the NBA. You might say no, nope, I'm too old for the NBA, and someone's going to bring a counter argument there. I think LeBron James is like seventy two at this point, right? So, you know, so <laughs> let him come alone like a hundred when he, <laughs> come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, all right. Um, okay. Steve Chauvin. Hi. Hi. It, it, it's amazing how basketball has aroused so many feelings and questions today. I too, as a young man was desperate to be taller so I could play in the NBA and it just didn't happen. So, I invented an environment, invited only kids who were small to play so that I felt taller. And 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 that's how I got through my earliest youth in, in basketball. Um, I, I yesterday played pickleball with a lady who said that she was 4'8 or 4'9. I never even thought of her as small. The way she projects herself is tall. And I don't even know if she does that. Uh, she's cognizant of, of, of what she's doing. She's courageous and she is a powerful shot. And and so I, I've learned over the years not to think of people in terms of their physical characteristics as, as a definition of how they are internally. And, and, so I, 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 I love when that happens. I feel total joy knowing that this lady is actually much taller than others might perceive, uh, might perceive. 
the only other thing I had to say is that, and maybe it's because I'm older and I'm 80 and a quarter now, not only 80, but I'm 80 and a quarter now. And I don't think deeply about things. Um, I believe that a lot of things are innate, the desire to create, the desire to be with other people, and the desire to express compassion are there within all of us. Some of us are lucky enough to be able to touch those, and some are less fortunate. But I I don't have that, that angst any, anymore about not knowing the the, the the design and total definition of everything. I, I I do have an imperative in my life and that is to feel to feel joy and to help older than me people, but uh, I, I just don't think about things that deeply anymore. Steve, um, uh, thank you for that. And you know, given that you've you've shared, you know, in some of our sessions that your questioning of of there being a god, or maybe even a doubt of that, um, with, with, um, this this um, this assumption that people have this desire to be compassionate within them. Where do you think that deep that that innate desire to be compassionate comes from? Like, where do you where do you root that for yourself? In that that faith in the human being. My, my my first and quick answer is my parents and and I'm emulating what what they were like but I don't ever remember ever ever hearing my parents say you should be kind and compassionate to other people and they never talked about that but they were and that's that's what I saw and I think that's what I took with me I I think yeah. my go ahead no, Sorry. please, no, please, yeah, no, please, yeah. I, I, I think my lack of belief in a personal God is my dad's own experience with the loss of his parents. Um, but but that is not a big barrier to me. I, I, I think so much is innate in all of us. When I see a little baby chuckling and looking at her or his parent and reaching out, to me, it, it, it's just there. Did, did God say, okay, you're going to reach out and love your parents and chuckle and smile and be happy and put jelly on the wall? I mean, that makes all of it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. It, it, and, and it demonstrates hum humility to show that so much of, our, of what we are and what we believe is based upon our experiences. Oftentimes we tell the world that, oh, I've I've gone through this intellectual journey and that's why I believe X, Y, and Z. But the truth is so much of what we believe is based upon our early childhood experiences, based upon other things that have shattered our faith or built our faith um, or believe in the goodness of human beings versus questioning the goodness of human beings. And the humility of acknowledging those experiences shaping us feels, feels significant. I'm sorry we're over time, but it was wonderful to be with you all. And for those who celebrate Hanukkah, Chag Sameach, and wishing everyone a beautiful day. And go actualize your freedom and don't take on any roles today except the ones you choose.